Heavenly Father, thank you so much for life and for joy, uh, for friendships and, and family. And I just uh, thank you that you have drawn us together here unto you today as friend and as family. And I ask that you take this time that you apply the truth that you want us to know and hear uh, in the places in our heart that make most sense and that matter to your kingdom. Uh, help us to see Christ as he was and as he intends to be in each of us. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Hello. You just missed the frivolity, so you'll have to get caught up on <laughs> Are you recording that? Were you recording that? <laughs> We've got serious attitude to do. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but we are looking um, in this in this um, this series at Christ the Revolutionary, and uh, I want to start over in Luke nineteen. Uh, we're going to kind of just rummage through scripture for about 20 minutes this morning. Um, what I want us to look at is what brought Christ into this, this place among us and this place in the world was essentially his focus his unyielding, unwavering focus on his purpose and his destiny. He never lost sight of that. And it was only because he never lost sight of that that he was not deterred, that he was not sidetracked. There were as many sidetracking forces coming at him as there are for you and me today. They just look different. But at every bend of the road, was this opportunity to use his power in a way his father did not intend. Uh, the, the, the crucible in which this focus was honed was the wilderness temptations. And I've gone into that before, so I'm just going to briefly uh, preview that for you, and we're not going to land there in the wilderness temptations. But with every temptation that Satan brought to him in the wilderness, it had to do with how he was going to use his power. It had to do with who he was and how he understood that. He had come to the point at his introduction into his, uh, his purpose uh, at his baptism I think in which he realized fully in, in, a, in a full sense that he was not just son of man but also son of God. He realized he was not just human but divine as well. So immediately he was thrust in as, after the anointing by the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove and, and declared, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was his anointing, that was his setting apart for the rest of his life. 
immediately he was thrust into the wilderness to be tempted, by the, led by the Spirit, to be tempted by Satan. God does not tempt us, but the Spirit did lead Christ into the wilderness for that temptation, which is a picture of, for you and me that when Satan is allowed to assail us and tempt us, God's purposes can still be found there, and he can use those temptations for his redemptive ends. Okay? Um, and that's the dance. There is a dance between God and Satan here on earth, and, and God sets parameters that he will not allow Satan to go past because he knows what he, God knows what he intends to do with your life and in your life and through you, and he knows what, what he can't allow from Satan in order for those purposes to be fulfilled. So you have then Satan tempting him uh, to uh, taking him to uh, the precipice of the, uh, the, the pinnacle of the temple and, and telling him, you know, jump off. And the angels, it is written in the scripture, the angels will, will catch you and bear you up and you will not be harmed. It was, it was the temptation to, um, on what to do, I'm sorry, thank you for... Uh, uh, blowing that out. There wasn't, I left a match in there because there wasn't a wick and evidently the match became a wick instead of <laughs> burning down, which I thought it was going to do. Thank you for doing that. Um, that. That temptation was, what was he to use his power for? Was it for personal grandstanding so that people would know he was divine? And he came to grips with no, he was not to use his power that way. Was he to use his power, uh, his, his freedom of decision, to take the kingdoms of this world from another's hand than his father's? Those kingdoms were destined for him. Was he to take those kingdoms outside of God's timing? Or was he to wait until the father gave it to him? And over and over again in Scripture, you see him saying, I can't do anything except what I see the Father do. Unless the Father gives me to do it, I cannot do it. That was decided in the wilderness. Whether or not to use his power, his divine power, his supernatural power, to fulfill his legitimate human needs. And the decision was no. He was not to use his divine power to pick up a rock at the end of 40 days of fasting and turn it to bread and eat it. He was to let his father meet his needs. He was not to let, let his human needs be met by any other way than, than man gets their needs met, than normal man. So we see then here, all of that was honed, his sense of purpose and his sense of what he was about and how he was to do what he was about was all refined and honed in the wilderness. And so then you see this amazing focus that he had that, that equipped him as the revolutionary that he became, that he was. And so in Luke 19, we're just gonna go through some of the scriptures that speak to how Christ saw what he was about and, and why, why he was here. Uh, in uh, verse 10, of uh, Luke 19. Now this is where he has invited himself to eat at uh, uh, Zacchaeus' house. 
a man who was reviled and despised by the Jews, a man who was a traitor to the Jews, a man who had defrauded the people, a man who had robbed and stolen from them through excessive taxation. And Christ said, I need to go eat with you. The reason that that was so clear to Christ is in verse 10, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Turn over to Matthew 9. Same sort of thing, it just amplifies it a bit. Matthew 9, verses 12 through uh, 13. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that are whole don't need a physician, only they who are sick. But go and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, he is bringing grace and mercy, not the law, not legalities not living according to the, the letter of the law and the legalism of the law, but according to the grace of the law. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Made it very easy for him to go to that sinner's home. It was for Zacchaeus that he had come. He was ambivalent, not ambivalent, he, it, it, status and prestige was irrelevant to him. In fact, if there was any relevancy to him of status and prestige, it was that he didn't go there. He did occasionally eat in the homes of the Pharisees and, and the wealthy, but that did not bend him. It did not draw his gaze. He came for those who knew their need. It was not that there are some humans who are not sick and who do not need a physician. It was that there are some humans who do not know they are sick who do not know they walk with a limp, who are so self-sufficient and self-focused that they don't have a clue and they don't want to have a clue. That's who he's talking about there when he said, I didn't come for those who are whole. They, I, I can't help them because they don't know that they're not whole. They don't know that they're sick. I have come for those who know that they walk with a limp and they have needs. So his focus and his purpose was to the lost and, and, and not to necessarily to the obviously lost. I mean, to the world, Zacchaeus had it made. He had money. He had power. He was needless, but not to Christ. The very fact that this needless man had climbed a tree and was seeking to know who this guy was, suggests that he knew his needfulness. So Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He came for those who were sick. Turn over to John um, 3.17. We see, <clears throat> we've seen what, what he was about, the, the, perp the focus or the direction of his... Uh, his ministry here on earth. And in John 3.17, we see his understanding 
of his role in a different light. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to point a finger and shake an angry fist at the infidels. He came to save the world. That ties in on over in John 12, verse 47. And if any man hear my words and believe them not, if any man hears me and rejects me and believes them not, I do not judge him. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. I came not to judge. So when the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 21, turned sadly away from what Jesus said, Jesus knew he was going to do that, but he loved him anyway. Look at that in Mark 10, just briefly. This goes to that understanding. He didn't come to present the truth and then if people rejected him, him to reject them. Him to be angry with them. Him to not have anything to do with them. In, uh, in Mark 10, if I can just get over there, I'm still in Luke. Then uh, um, the, this rich young ruler is asking what he must do to inherit the kingdom. And um, Christ tells him some of the law, and he answers in verse 20 and says, And Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And Jesus, verse 21, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, This one thing you lack. He knew his heart. He knew what was lacking in his heart. He knew what was lacking in his commitment, that he had many possessions and that they would keep him from this kind of fellowship of Christ. But he loved him anyway. He didn't come to then, once he turned away from Christ and rejected Christ, for Christ to have a right to get mad. He knew his role. His father's role is to judge. His role is not to judge. His role is to save. So he never judged. Now, he did judge, in a sense, because he knew the heart of the Pharisees. Those are the only group of people that he was really angry with that he was really condemning on. And he told the people at the very beginning, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will not make it into the kingdom because they're not going to be there. It's because they had every avenue of knowing God. They had every avenue available to them of recognizing the Messiah. And their pride and their hypocrisy and their arrogance would not allow that. So yes, he came against that because that was full knowledge arrogant hypocrisy, which I think is the toxic agent of the kingdom of God among men, is if they see Christians who are judgmental of others and not reflective of their own issues and, and tending to their own issues. And I think that's why he came at them so strongly, because they were church leaders. They were people who, who had what they needed to know him, and they rejected him with that knowledge. So you have then another, another linkage here, in turn over to Luke 9, of Christ understanding this, Christ not losing sight of what he was about. 
in Luke 9, verse 55 and 56. This is where he has commissioned his disciples to go before him. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He is in his last leg of moving toward Jerusalem and his final, <clears throat> his final days here on earth. Now, I think there's many, several weeks, if not months, of, of, of time lag here from Luke 9, um, probably weeks, uh, to uh, his last week of passion. But it is here <clears throat> in Luke 9 that uh, in verse 51 that Jesus set his face, it says in King James, uh, to go to Jerusalem. Uh, that was his purpose was honing down to the final, to the final lap. And he sent messengers before his face, and they entered into a village of the Samaritans to prepare the way for Christ so that the people in all these villages that his disciples went before him would be prepared to hear him, would be prepared to receive him, would know that he was coming, and have some sense of who he was. Well, in this one Samaritan village, they did not receive him, verse 53. They didn't receive him. And in verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, uh, two of his closest, saw this, they said, Lord, would you have us command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did? <laughs> and we, we, I think we briefly mentioned this last week. They had their power, and they were prepared to use it. They were prepared to condemn or destroy those that would reject or refuse Christ. And Christ's answer here reflects what we've just been reading about him. But he turned, verse 55, and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He's not come to condemn, but to save. How many times do we lose our bearings when we're in a, a group? maybe a group of Christians. But maybe they have a spirit about them that is not Christ's spirit. It feels a little abrasive. It feels judgmental. It feels, feels condemning or ridiculing. And we can sort of get caught up in that. Maybe we don't just jump into the whole pot and get immersed in it, but, you know, we dip our toes into it. And we... we we maybe laugh at something that we shouldn't laugh at, maybe a, a joke that's shady. And, and we respond, but it, it, it's, it's a joking maybe against someone. Christ was a rock here. You know, he was a lamb in many places, but he was a lion. He was a rock. He was unyielding and never wavering toward that condemning spirit. He could have. The woman caught in adultery, he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He was the only one there qualified to do that. But when they all turned away, he said, I don't condemn you either. And it wasn't because he had sin that he didn't condemn. It was because that's not what he was about. 
So he's come to seek and to save the lost, not to destroy the spirit, not to destroy the personality of a person, not to destroy their heart, not to destroy, but to save. Uh, to uh, what we find in Luke 4.18, where he came out of the wilderness uh, experience. The first thing he did as, was make his way to Nazareth to declare the purpose publicly that had been so riveted into him in the wilderness. To make public what he had come to grips with in the wilderness. And so he reads from the book of Isaiah, Luke 4, 18, about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me, set me aside to preach the good news to the poor, not to the rich, not that they were excluded, but they had to know of their poverty. They had to know of their need. He has sent me, I mean, this was honed from the wilderness. He has sent me, this is what he came to understand in the wilderness. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, not those that are whole, to preach deliverance to the captives, not to those who are already free. Remember the uh, Pharisees who came in John 8? And, they, and, and Christ was saying, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And, and, and the Son will make you free indeed if you know the Son. And they were saying, we're, we're not free and never have been, which is just you know, mind-boggling to think that their mindset did not take into consideration the thousands of years in their history, at least the, the centuries that approached thousands of years in their history, in which they had been in bondage. And, she, and they said, we've never been in bondage to anyone in Luke 8. And that's whom he's talking about. I didn't come for those who have always been free. They didn't know. I, their, their mindset didn't let them realize or admit their bondage. And that's just the picture of it. But he said, I've come to set at liberty those who are bruised. Those who know of their bruised places. That's whom I've come for. Those who know of their captivity. Not to the hands of the Syrians, the Assyrians, but to the hands of our own life experiences. Those life experiences put you and me in bondage. They establish in us at the point of those gouged out places in our soul messages that carry always with them a lie, if not many lies. But when the soul has been plowed through by hurtful, painful events, those messages that will always carry a lie, when, when there's been hurt and, and wounding that has happened at a deep level in you and me, there will always be a lie planted there. And it will almost always be something that automatically governs our knee-jerk reactions. We'll just have them and think, why can I not get a handle on this? Why don't I keep just automatically firing back, automatically feeling less than, all automatically feeling like a, a, a withered vine when these words come my way or a person looks at me this way or acts, treats me this way or just says a certain word. And boy, I'm off. 
That's because when that, when something painful and hurtful has happened in, in our lives, usually in childhood, but not always in childhood, it fillets us open, in a sense, to strike covenant. Remember the picture of Abram in uh, Genesis 15, where, where all the, the, the flesh sacrifices, the dove and, and the other animals, they were filleted open, they were cut open. And God struck covenant, he, this furnace, uh, this lamp, smoldering lamp came and, and passed down through the, the center of those two pieces of each of the sacrifices, uh, representing God and man and God's striking covenant. But Satan's counterfeit of that, dear hearts, is that when your flesh, your heart, the uh, deep places of your being, the core of who you are, has been sliced open by behaviors from significant people that count. It's been sliced open by painful words or actions or abandonment or abusive words or abusive behaviors. Then Satan, in a sense, through the lies, sort of strikes covenant with us. And he passes through the center of that filleted portion of your heart, that filleted portion of your soul, that part that has got a gully in it now. And he just puts his debris there in the gully. And his debris is the messages that have come from the abandonment or the abusive words or language or behavior or attitudes. And that, those messages land there and they, in a sense, in a very real sense, strike covenant with your heart. So that you spend all your adult life thinking, why am I acting this way? Why can I not get on top of this? And it's almost always because, in fact, I would say always, when you have these kinds of um, plowed up places in your landscape spiritually and, and soulishly, Lies will always land there and take root. And we will buy into the lie because in that moment of intensity and pain and hurt, we have bought in to something about ourselves or about others or even more specifically about God that is not true. But our soul has bought into it and grabs hold of it and it grows root, a root system there. So it creates these messages that we don't know how to get around. That is our crippled, wounded place. Those are the places of captivity. And until God can break open and fillet back open this place that has bought into the lie, struck covenant with it, and agreed with it. That's what striking covenant is. I'm in agreement with this. And I have come into agreement with that message. God has to get at that and fillet it open again. And oftentimes this is through a very difficult situation that then he, it allows for him to get in and redeem it. It allows for him to break open this wound that is healed on the surface. 
but is raw tissue and infected on the inside. And until he can get the infection out, he can't fill up the canal. <laughs> can't fill it up because the infection will still be there. So it's got to get the infection out. How does that happen? It usually happens through some sort of very painful situation that opens us back up and allows for light to come in, allows for truth to come in, allows for that bruised place in you to begin to be set free with the truth. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. It's not head knowledge truth. Oida, oida, O-I-D-A, is the Greek word for head knowledge. When Christ in John 8.32 said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, the Greek word used there is gnosko, which means a deep heart knowing, a heart experiential belief. Believing the truth experientially replaces the belief of the lie that occurred experientially. When I have an experience with God through the Holy Spirit, it can come in and uproot the lie that I have been in covenant with, and it can make a new covenant of truth deep in me and set at liberty that bruised place in me, deliver that captive place in me. That's why he came. He came not only to give eternal life, eternally for the lost souls, but to bring inner healing. And, and, and we work, walk around you know, trying to pretend we're not wounded, trying to pretend we don't walk with a lamp. Our spouses usually understand pretty quickly that we walk with a lamp, but we don't. <laughs> the people that we live most closely to recognize it really quickly because they have to walk all over our landmine field. So we run from that because somehow it gives a message of weakness. Well, we are weak. Why, why do I need to keep running from that? Why can't I just turn around and say, you know, this is me. It is for this reason, Jesus, that you came. Why am I surprised? I finally come to that. You know, why am I surprised by this? Thank you, Lord. You came for this. That's, this is why. For no other reason. If no one else needed you, I need you because this stinks. And I can't do anything about this without your power and your truth and your light to help me. So if I quit running from my bruised places and wait for him to catch up with my flight and get in there, then he came for me. And he came to make you and me whole. To be complete in him. And to not be afraid of the limp. To not try to cover up the blemish, but to say, this is it. This is me, and Lord, I need your help. He came for that. But he also came not only to give us eternal life, but to heal us, but he also came in John 10, 10 to give us abundant life. And part of the abundant life he offers to you and me is through this healing, through this whole-making intersection where the spirit of Christ and the spirit of the Father come and entwine in our spirit and begin to give us not only eternal life but abundant life and begin to heal those broken places. Christ never lost sight of any of that. Never. 
And he had so many opportunities. Even with Pilate, Pilate said, you know, why are your people not fighting for you? He never lost sight. If my kingdom were out of this world, they would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. So my people do not fight. They do not take up the sword. In John 4.34, his disciples have gone to get meat at the local grocery store. And um, they came back. I've just gone way past John 4. Um, in verse 34, Uh, it starts actually as lead in verse 31 um, they entreated Christ to eat and he said in verse 32 here's this focus again I have meat to eat that you know not of now you know they're thinking okay did somebody bring him some food from Kroger you know how did he get this food We, we went into town to get that for him he didn't have it how does he have it now they're on a different plane And Jesus uh, said in verse 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. That is my meat. More important to me than food. John 6, 38. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. His will was irrelevant, except that it was the deciding factor on with whom he would strike covenant, with whom he was to walk and engage. John seven twenty nine. But I know, uh, but I know him, the Father, for I am from him, and he has sent me. His purpose was prescribed by his Father. He was sent, not by his own initiation but at the behest of his father. And he carried the divine directions and instructions from his father. Uh, John 20, verse 21. What does all of this have to do with you and me? There in that evening where he, uh, his disciples were assembled after Mary had seen him in the garden, Christ in the garden that morning. And he said, you know, tell my, my disciples that I am ascending to the Father and I will, I will see them. I'll, I'll be back. That evening he appeared um, unto them in the closed room, verse 19. And Jesus greets them with, peace be unto you. He showed them his hands in verse 20 in his side. And the disciples realized it was Jesus. And then in verse 21, Jesus said unto them, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. My Father, he has said over and over again, has sent me. Here in this evening, just before he breathes on them and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit, he said, As I have been sent, so I am sending. And then uh, at the end of Luke, at the end of Matthew, where as he ascends, he tells them to go into all the world and teach and preach and baptize, make disciples. That is an unction we have 
all generations of the church, all generations of faith have understood was not just for those 12, but it was for all who would follow Christ and believe. So as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus has sent you and me to go out and teach and preach, but to also live as he lived to abide in him and him to abide in us so that our flesh, our body carries the spirit of Christ as surely as the body of Jesus carried the flesh of Christ 2,000 years ago. It is an incarnation all over again where the word is made flesh in your flesh and dwells among men today through you. He no longer has physical Jesus to dwell among men today so that they might see God, so that they might recognize the Father and know who he is. He doesn't, God doesn't have Jesus' body anymore, but he has the body of every believer. And the challenge for you and me is that we will decide to walk as Jesus walked. That we will decide to participate in the same kind of spirit that Jesus was of and not knit our own brand of spirit living with God's brand and have some hybrid version of Christianity, which is pretty much what happens most of the time. He's called you and me out to be a whole new order of person, a whole new order of man. And he's given us a blueprint. So I want to end uh, our time today uh, by just... Uh, looking at this. I want to turn first to Matthew 20, 28, and then we'll tie it in over to John 13. Matthew 20, verse 28. This is another one of those places where Christ didn't lose sight of who he was and why. The challenge for you and me is for us not to lose sight of why we are and of whose we are. Christ never lost that. He asked us not to lose it either. In uh, chapter 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of God, the only begotten Son of the King of the universe, came to minister to man. In the last night, in the last few hours of his life with his disciples in John 13, he speaks to that in a different way. Starting with verse 12. He, uh, at the end of their meal, he wraps a towel around him. Um, actually, I want to back up. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself about with it. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel um, that was wrapped around him. And then Simon Peter, as you all know, said, no, don't do that, because that was the sign of a servant. 
A servant was supposed to do that to all guests who came into the home. And Peter's saying, you're the master. You're not to do this. And Christ said, if I don't wash your feet, you can have nothing to do with me. If I don't serve you and you don't let me minister to you, I can have nothing to do with you. If you don't let me wash you. There's a lot of double entendres here. And then, you know, we all know Peter said, then wash all of me, basically. And Jesus said in verse 10, he that is washed does not need anything to be washed except his feet. In other words, we just need to keep current with him. We've already been washed by the word, by, our, by his blood. We have been made clean. We are into the priesthood. We are into his kingdom. But we need to keep ourselves current. Your feet need to be washed. That's what comes in touch with the world. And he, um, verse 12, he had, after he washed the feet and taken the garments, he said, do you know what I've just done to you? Do you know what this is about? You call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for I am that. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than the Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. I've given you an example. I've come not to be ministered unto, but to minister. That is his call and his purpose and his mission to you and me. We are to be servants. We are to minister to others. Not to be ministered to. Not to have some sense of privilege somewhere, tucked away, that we can just take out occasionally. You know where I stumble over that the most? Is at a restaurant that charges all the high, these high prices and the service stinks. What is that about, Brenda? It is about me having a sense of privilege that I am paying for a service and I expect it to be done right. Now, I'm not going to say that, but if I am really frustrated with the service and really feeling like trying to be tacky, I don't, I'm usually not tacky, but I feel it on the inside. I'm a tacky maniac on the inside. <laughs> then I do not know what spirit I am of because he has sent me to serve, to minister unto, not to have a sense of entitlement. But does that mean we should not have some problem when our money has been squandered by people? No, we can, we can work through that, but we have to do it in the right attitude. We have to do it in the right attitude. Christ was both a lamb and lion both shepherd and rock, hard as nails in places, unyielding in places, and yet gentle. Let himself be taken advantage of when it was right because he came to minister unto and not to be ministered to. You and I have much to learn from the one who has sent us. 
but first we must realize what he has sent us for. What he has sent you and me, that we are sent. We first are called, called to follow. When you and I answer that call to follow him, then he sends us. So the question is, have you answered the call to follow? Or just the invitation to believe? If you've answered beyond the invitation to believe, to the call to follow, then it is Jesus Christ who has sent you and me. And he has sent us with certain papers. And one is the servant's towel that we carry with us to minister unto and not to be ministered to. Galatians 6, 2, Paul talks about this law of Christ. And, um, well, I'm in Ephesians, not Galatians. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are about six laws alluded to in the New Testament. This is one of them, the law of Christ. The law is to bear one another's burdens. Matthew 9.38, he says, Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the fields. He sends us out, if we will answer the call, as laborers in the field. The field of the world, the field of our lives, the field of the community in which we live, the field of the people that are in our lives. We are to be laborers there with Christ. He sends us out in Matthew 10, verse 16, as sheep among wolves, to be gentle as lambs and wise as serpents, to have wisdom and discernment, but with a gentleness. He is calling, if, if this revolution is to continue, it can only continue if he has people who will answer the summons to the revolution, who will go out into the fields and fight the revolution. But his revolution is not for fighting in the way we are trained to fight. So we have to be willing to be retrained. And I would ask that this week, you be reflective on what that means. In the real world, your real world, what does that mean? We're going to look at Christ in, in his provocative mode, his confrontational mode. He was not a doormat. <laughs> he was a prickly pear at times. But he was also this Rose of Sharon, this lily of the valley that brought fragrance and beauty to the world. And in Matthew 18, 18, he tells his disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he does that in the context of talking about forgiveness. Peter said, well, how often should I forgive? Right after that. Se seven times? And Christ said, basically, infinitely. If someone repents, you forgive them. There's no limit to your liberation. There's no limit to what you can lose here. My unforgiveness binds things up. My forgiveness sets it free. My forgiveness gives grace. So he calls you and me 
to set at liberty those that are bruised, to deliver those captive places and people, set them free with our love, our acceptance, our lack of judgmentalism, our lack of condemnation, our grace, and sometimes our toughness. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Let's pray. I just ask that you take a few moments to reflect here on all that we've talked about this morning and all that the Lord has spoken of in the hidden recesses of your own heart. I'll just give you some time to be alone with the Lord on this. Um, the communion, bread and juice are here at the front if you want to seal whatever transaction you and the Lord make here in this quietness with um, a remembrance of him. Now we'll just leave the rest of this time between you and the Lord.